Section eight of Youth by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section eight, chapters twenty nine through thirty two. Chapter twenty nine, relations between the girls and ourselves. Of the girls, Woloda took the strange view that although he wished that they should have enough to eat, should sleep well, be well dressed, and avoid making such mistakes in French as would shame him before strangers, he would never admit that they could think or feel like human beings, still less that they could converse with him sensibly about anything. Whenever they addressed to him a serious question, a thing by the way which he always tried to avoid, such as asking his opinion on a novel or inquiring about his doings at the university, he invariably pulled a grimace, and either turned away without speaking, or answered with some nonsensical French phrase, comme c'est très joli, or the like. Or again, feigning to look serious and stolidly wise, he would say something absolutely meaningless, and bearing no relation whatever to the question asked him, or else suddenly exclaim, with a look of pretended unconsciousness, the word boulcou, or poyachali, or capustu, respectively roll of butter, away, and cabbage, or something of the kind, and when afterwards I happened to repeat these words to him as having been told me by Lubotshka or Katenka, he would always remark, Hm! So you actually care about talking to them. I can see you are a duffer still. And one needed to see and hear him to appreciate the profound, immutable contempt which echoed in this remark. He had been grown up now two years, and was in love with every good-looking woman that he met. Yet despite the fact that he came in daily contact with Katenka, who during those two years had been wearing long dresses and was growing prettier every day, the possibility of his falling in love with her never seemed to enter his head, whether this proceeded from the fact that the prosaic recollections of childhood were still too fresh in his memory, or whether from the aversion which very young people feel for everything domestic, or whether from the common human weakness which, at a first encounter with anything fair and pretty, leads a man to say to himself, Ah, I shall meet much more of the same kind during my life. But at all events Woloda had never yet looked upon Katenka with a man's eyes. All that summer Woloda appeared to find things very wearisome, a fact which arose out of that contempt for us all which, as I have said, he made no effort to conceal. His expression of face seemed to be constantly saying, Phew! How it bores me to have no one to speak to! The first thing in the morning he would go out shooting, or sit reading a book in his room, and not dress until luncheon-time. Indeed, if papa was not at home, he would take his book into that meal, and go on reading it without addressing so much as a single word to any one of us, who felt somehow guilty in his presence. In the evening, too, he would stretch himself on a settee in the drawing-room, and either go to sleep, propped on his pillow, or tell us farcical stories sometimes stories so improper as to make Mimi grow angry and blush, and ourselves die with laughter. At other times he would not condescend to address a single serious word to any member of the family except papa, or occasionally myself. Involuntarily I offended against his view of girls, seeing that I was not so afraid of seeming affectionate as he, and moreover had not such a profound and confirmed contempt for young women. Yet several times that summer, when driven by lack of amusement to try and engage Lubotshka and Katenka in conversation, I always encountered in them such an absence of any capacity for logical thinking, 
and such an ignorance of the simplest, most ordinary matters, as, for instance, the nature of money, the subjects studied at universities, the effect of war, and so forth, as well as such indifference to my explanations of such matters, that these attempts of mine only ended in confirming my unfavorable opinion of feminine ability. I remember one evening when Lubotshka kept repeating some unbearably tedious passage on the piano about a hundred times in succession, while Woloda, who was dozing on a settee in the drawing-room, kept addressing no one in particular as he muttered, "'Lord, how she murders it! What a musician! What a Beethoven!' He always pronounced the composer's name with a special irony. "'Wrong again! Now a second time! That's it!' And so on. Meanwhile Katenka and I were sitting by the tea-table, and somehow she began to talk about her favorite subject—love. I was in the right frame of mind to philosophize, and began by loftily defining love as the wish to acquire in another what one does not possess in oneself. To this Katenka retorted that, on the contrary, love is not love at all if a girl desires to marry a man for his money alone, but that, in her opinion, riches were a vain thing, and true love only the affection which can stand the test of separation. This I took to be a hint concerning her love for Dubkoff. At this point Woloda, who must have been listening all the time, raised himself on his elbow, and cried out some rubbish or another, and I felt that he was right. Apart from the general faculties, more or less developed in different persons, of intellect, sensibility, and artistic feeling, there also exists, more or less developed in different circles of society, and especially in families, a private or individual faculty which I may call apprehension. The essence of this faculty lies in sympathetic appreciation of proportion, and in identical understanding of things. Two individuals who possess this faculty and belong to the same social circle, or the same family, apprehend an expression of feeling precisely to the same point, namely, the point beyond which such expression becomes mere phrasing. Thus they apprehend precisely where commendation ends and irony begins, where attraction ends and pretense begins in a manner which would be impossible for persons possessed of a different order of apprehension. Persons possessed of identical apprehension view objects in an identically ludicrous, beautiful, or repellent light. And in order to facilitate such identical apprehension between members of the same social circle or family, they usually establish a language, terms of speech, or terms to define such shades of apprehension as exist for them alone. In our particular family such apprehension was common to Papa, Woloda, and myself, and was developed to the highest pitch. Dubkoff also approximated to our coterie in apprehension, but Dmitri, though infinitely more intellectual than Dubkoff, was grosser in this respect. With no one, however, did I bring this faculty to such a point as with Woloda, who had grown up with me under identical conditions. Papa stood a long way from us and much that was to us as clear as two and two make four was to him incomprehensible. For instance, I and Woloda managed to establish between ourselves the following terms with meanings to correspond. Isium, raisins, meant a desire to boast of one's money. Shishka, bump or swelling, on pronouncing which one had to join one's fingers together, and to put a particular emphasis upon the two shs in the word, meant anything fresh, healthy, and comely, but not elegant. A substantive used in the plural meant an undue partiality for the object which it denoted. 
and so forth and so forth. At the same time the meaning depended considerably upon the expression of the face and the context of the conversation, so that no matter what new expression one of us might invent to define a shade of feeling, the other could immediately understand it by a hint alone. The girls did not share this faculty of apprehension, and herein lay the chief cause of our moral estrangement, and of the contempt which we felt for them. It may be that they too had their apprehension, but it so little ran with ours that where we already perceived the phrasing they still saw only the feeling. Our irony was for them truth, and so on. At that time I had not yet learnt to understand that they were in no way to blame for this, and that absence of such apprehension in no way prevented them from being good and clever girls. Accordingly, I looked down upon them. Moreover, having once lit upon my precious idea of frankness, and being bent upon applying it to the full in myself, I thought the quiet, confiding nature of Lubotshka guilty of secretiveness and dissimulation, simply because she saw no necessity for digging up and examining all her thoughts and instincts. For instance, the fact that she always signed the sign of the cross over papa before going to bed, that she and Katenka invariably wept in church when attending requiem masses for mamma, and that Katenka sighed and rolled her eyes about when playing the piano. All these things seemed to me sheer make-believe, and I asked myself, at what period did they learn to pretend like grown-up people? and how can they bring themselves to do it? CHAPTER Thirty: HOW I EMPLOYED MY TIME Nevertheless, the fact that that summer I developed a passion for music caused me to become better friends with the ladies of our household than I had been for years. In the spring a young fellow came to see us, armed with a letter of introduction, who, as soon as ever he entered the drawing-room, fixed his eyes upon the piano, and kept gradually edging his chair closer to it as he talked to Mimi, and Katenka. After discoursing a while of the weather and the amenities of country life, he skilfully directed the conversation to piano-tuners, music, and pianos generally, and ended by saying that he himself played. And in truth he did sit down and perform three waltzes, with Mimi, Lubotshka, and Katenka grouped about the instrument, and watching him as he did so. He never came to see us again, but his playing, and his attitude when at the piano, and the way in which he kept shaking his long hair, and most of all the manner in which he was able to execute octaves with his left hand, as he first of all played them rapidly with his thumb and little finger, and then slowly closed those members, and then played the octaves afresh, made a great impression upon me. This graceful gesture of his, together with his easy pose and his shaking of hair, and successful winning of the ladies' applause by his talent, ended by firing me to take up the piano. Convinced that I possessed both talent and a passion for music, I set myself to learn, and in doing so acted just as millions of the male, still more of the female, sex have done, who try to teach themselves without a skilled instructor, without any real turn for the art, or without the smallest understanding either of what the art can give, or of what ought to be done to obtain the gift. For me, music, or rather piano-playing, was simply a means of winning the ladies' good graces through their sensibility. With the help of Katenka I first learnt the notes, incidentally breaking several of them with my clumsy fingers, and then, that is to say, after two months of hard work, supplemented by ceaseless twiddling of my rebellious fingers on my knees after luncheon, and on the pillow when in bed, went on to pieces which I played, so Katenka assured me, with soul, avec homme 
but altogether regardless of time. My range of pieces was the usual one—waltzes, gallops, romances, arrangements, etc., all of them of the class of delightful compositions of which any one with a little healthy taste could point out a selection among the better class works contained in any volume of music and say, these are what you ought not to play, seeing that anything worse, less tasteful, and more silly has never yet been included in any collection of music, but which, probably for that very reason, are to be found on the piano of every Russian lady. True, we also possessed an unfortunate volume which contained Beethoven's sonate pathétique and the C minor sonata, a volume lamed for life by the ladies, more especially by Lubachka, who used to discourse music from it in memory of Mamma, as well as certain other good pieces which her teacher in Moscow had given her. But among that collection there were likewise compositions of the teacher's own, in the shape of clumsy marches and gallops, and these too Lubachka used to play. Katenka and I cared nothing for serious works, but preferred, above all things, Le Fou and The Nightingale, the latter of which Katenka would play until her fingers almost became invisible, and which I, too, was beginning to execute with much vigor and some continuity. I had adopted the gestures of the young man of whom I have spoken, and frequently regretted that there were no strangers present to see me play. Soon, however, I began to realize that Litzt and Kalkbrenner were beyond me, and that I should never overtake Katenka. Accordingly, imagining that classical music was easier, as well as partly for the sake of originality, I suddenly came to the conclusion that I loved abstruse German music. I began to go into raptures whenever Lubachka played the sonate pathétique, and although, if the truth be told, that work had for years driven me to the verge of distraction, I set myself to play Beethoven, and to talk of him as Beethoven. Yet through all this chopping and changing and pretense, as I now conceive, there may have run in me a certain vein of talent, since music sometimes affected me even to tears, and things which particularly pleased me I could strum on the piano afterwards, in a certain fashion, without the score, so that, had any one taught me at that period to look upon music as an end, a grace in itself, and not merely as a means for pleasing women-folk with the velocity and pseudo-sentiment of one's playing, I might possibly have become a passable musician. The reading of French novels, of which Woloda had brought a large store with him from Moscow, was another of my amusements that summer. At that period Monte Cristo and Taine's works had just appeared, while I also reveled in stories by Sue, Dumas, and Paudecoq. Even their most unnatural personages and events were for me as real as actuality, and not only was I incapable of suspecting an author of lying, but in my eyes there existed no author at all. That is to say, the various personages and events of a book paraded themselves before me on the printed page as personages and events that were alive and real. And although I had never in my life met such characters as I there read about, I never for a second doubted that I should one day do so. I discovered in myself all the passions described in every novel, as well as a likeness to all the characters, heroes and villains impartially, who figured therein, just as a suspicious man finds in himself the signs of every possible disease when reading a book on medicine. I took pleasure both in the cunning designs, the glowing sentiments, the tumultuous events, and the character-drawing of these works. A good man was of the goodness, 
a bad man of the badness, possible only to the imagination of early youth. Likewise I found great pleasure in the fact that it was all written in French, and that I could lay to heart the fine words which the fine heroes spoke, and recall them for use some day when engaged in some noble deed. What quantities of French phrases I culled from those books for Kolpikoff's benefit if I should ever meet him again, as well as for hers, when at length I should find her and reveal to her my love. For them both I prepared speeches which should overcome them as soon as spoken. Upon novels, too, I founded new ideals of the moral qualities which I wished to attain. First of all, I wished to be noble in all my deeds and conduct. I used the French word noble instead of the Russian word blagorodny for the reason that the former has a different meaning to the latter, as the Germans well understood when they adopted noble as nobel and differentiated it from Ehrlich. Next, to be strenuous, and lastly, to be what I already inclined to be, namely, comme il faut. I even tried to approximate my appearance and bearing to that of the heroes who possessed these qualities. In particular, I remember how in one of the hundred or so novels which I read that summer, there was a very strenuous hero with heavy eyebrows, and that I so greatly wished to resemble him. I felt that I did so already from a moral point of view, that one day, when looking at my eyebrows in the glass, I conceived the idea of clipping them in order to make them grow bushier. Unfortunately, after I had started to do so, I happened to clip one spot rather shorter than the rest, and so had to level down the rest to it, with the result that, to my horror, I beheld myself eyebrowless, and anything but presentable. However, I comforted myself with the reflection that my eyebrows would soon sprout again as bushy as my hero's, and was only perplexed to think how I could explain the circumstance to the household when they next perceived my eyebrowless condition. Accordingly, I borrowed some gunpowder from Woloda, rubbed it on my temples, and set it alight. The powder did not fire properly, but I succeeded in singeing myself sufficiently to avert all suspicion of my pranks. And, indeed, afterwards, when I had forgotten all about my hero, my eyebrows grew again, and much thicker than they had been before. CHAPTER Thirty One, Comilfo Several times in the course of this narrative I have hinted at an idea corresponding to the above French heading, and now feel it incumbent upon me to devote a whole chapter to that idea which was one of the most ruinous lying notions which ever became engrafted upon my life by my upbringing and my social milieu. The human race may be divided into several categories—rich and poor, good and bad, military and civilian, clever and stupid, and so forth and so forth. Yet each man has his own favorite fundamental system of division, which he unconsciously uses to class each new person with whom he meets. At the time of which I am speaking, my own favorite fundamental system of division in this respect was into people comme il faut and people comme il ne faut pas, the latter subdivided again into people merely not comme il faut and the lower orders. People comme il faut I respected, and looked upon as worthy to consort with me as my equals. The second of the above categories I pretended merely to despise, but in reality hated and nourished towards them a kind of feeling of offended personality, while the third category had no existence at all, so far as I was concerned, since my contempt for them was too complete. This comilfoness of mine lay, first and foremost, 
in proficiency in French, especially conversational French. A person who spoke that language badly at once aroused in me a feeling of dislike. Why do you try to talk as we do when you haven't a notion how to do it? I would seem to ask him, with my most venomous and quizzing smile. The second condition of comilfoness was long nails that were well kept and clean. The third, ability to bow, dance, and converse. The fourth, and a very important one, indifference to everything, and a constant air of refined supercilious ennui. Moreover, there were certain general signs which I considered enabled me to tell, without actually speaking to a man, the class to which he belonged. Chief among these signs, the others being the fittings of his rooms, his gloves, his handwriting, his turnout, and so forth, were his feet. The relation of boots to trousers was sufficient to determine in my eyes the social status of a man. Heelless boots with angular toes, wetted to narrow, unstrapped trouser-ends, these denoted the vulgarian. Boots with narrow, round toes and heels, accompanied either by tight trousers strapped under the instep and fitting close to the leg, or by wide trousers similarly strapped, but projecting in a peak over the toe, these meant the man of mauvais genre and so on, and so on. It was a curious thing that I, who lacked all ability to become comil foe, should have assimilated the idea so completely as I did. Possibly it was the fact that it had cost me such enormous labor to acquire that brought about its strenuous development in my mind. I hardly like to think how much of the best and most valuable time of my first sixteen years of existence I wasted upon its acquisition. Yet every one whom I imitated—Woloda, Dubkoff, and the majority of my acquaintances—seemed to acquire it easily. I watched them with envy, and silently toiled to become proficient in French, to bow gracefully and without looking at the person whom I was saluting, to gain dexterity in small talk and dancing, to cultivate indifference and ennui, and to keep my fingernails well trimmed, though I frequently cut my finger-ends with the scissors in so doing and all the time I felt that so much remained to be done if I was ever to attain my end. A room, a writing-table, an equipage I still found it impossible to arrange comil foe, however much I fought down my aversion to practical matters in my desire to become proficient. Yet everything seemed to arrange itself properly with other people, just as though things could never have been otherwise. Once I remember asking Dubkoff, after much zealous and careful laboring at my finger-nails—his own were extraordinarily good—whether his nails had always been as now, or whether he had done anything to make them so. To which he replied that never within his recollection had he done anything to them, and that he could not imagine a gentleman's nails possibly being different. This answer incensed me greatly, for I had not yet learnt that one of the chief conditions of comilfoness was to hold one's tongue about the labor by which it had been acquired. Comilfulness, I looked upon, as not only a great merit, a splendid accomplishment, an embodiment of all the perfection which one must strive to attain, but as the one indispensable condition without which there could never be happiness, nor glory, nor any good whatsoever in this world. Even the greatest artist or savant or benefactor of the human race, would at that time have won from me no respect if he had not also been comilfo. A man possessed of comilfoness stood higher than and beyond all possible equality with such people, and might well leave it to them to paint pictures, to compose music, to write books, or to do good. 
Possibly he might commend them for so doing, since why should not merit be commended wherever it be found? But he could never stand on a level with them, seeing that he was comme il faut, and they were not, a quite final and sufficient reason. In fact, I actually believe that had we possessed a brother or a father or a mother who had not been comme il faut, I should have declared it to be a great misfortune for us, and announced that between myself and them there could never be anything in common. Yet neither waste of the golden hours which I consumed in constantly endeavouring to observe the many arduous, unattainable conditions of comifulness, to the exclusion of any more serious pursuit, nor dislike of and contempt for nine-tenths of the human race, nor disregard of all the beauty that lay outside the narrow circle of comifulness, comprised the whole of the evil which the idea wrought in me. The chief evil of all lay in the notion acquired that a man need not strive to become a chinovnik, official, a coach-builder, a soldier, a savant, or anything useful, so long as only he was comme il faut, that by attaining the latter quality he had done all that was demanded of him, and was even superior to most people. Usually, at a given period in youth, and after many errors and excesses, every man recognizes the necessity of his taking an active part in social life, and chooses some branch of labor to which to devote himself. Only with the comme il faut man does this rarely happen. I have known, and know, very, very many people, old, proud, self-satisfied, and opinionated, who to the question, if it should ever present itself to them in their world, who have you been? and what have you ever done?" would be unable to reply otherwise than by saying, Je fus un homme très comme il faut. Such a fate was awaiting myself. CHAPTER Thirty Two, YOUTH Despite the confusion of ideas raging in my head, I was at least young, innocent, and free that summer, consequently almost happy. Sometimes I would rise quite early in the morning, for I slept on the open veranda, and the bright horizontal beams of the morning sun would wake me up. Dressing myself quickly, I would tuck a towel and a French novel under my arm, and go off to bathe in the river in the shade of a birch-tree which stood half-averst from the house. Next I would stretch myself on the grass and read, raising my eyes from time to time to look at the surface of the river, where it showed blue in the shade of the trees at the ripples caused by the first morning breeze, at the yellowing field of rye on the further bank, and at the bright red sheen of the sunlight, as it struck lower and lower down the white trunks of the birch-trees, which, ranged in ranks one behind the other, gradually receded into the remote distance of the home park. At such moments I would feel joyously conscious of having within me the same young fresh force of life as nature was everywhere exuding around me. When, however, the sky was overcast with gray clouds of morning, and I felt chilly after bathing, I would often start to walk at random through the fields and woods, and joyously trail my wet boots in the fresh dew. All the while my head would be filled with vivid dreams concerning the heroes of my last read novel, and I would keep picturing to myself some leader of an army, or some statesman, or marvelously strong man, or devoted lover, or another, and looking around me in a nervous expectation that I should suddenly descry her somewhere near me, in a meadow or behind a tree. Yet, whenever these rambles led me near peasants engaged at their work, all my ignoring of the existence of the common people did not prevent me from experiencing an involuntary, overpowering sensation of awkwardness, so that I always tried to avoid their seeing me. 
When the heat of the day had increased, it was not infrequently my habit, if the ladies did not come out of doors for their morning tea, to go rambling through the orchard and kitchen garden, and to pluck ripe fruit there. Indeed, this was an occupation which furnished me with one of my greatest pleasures. Let any one go into an orchard, and dive into the midst of a tall, thick, sprouting raspberry bed. Above will be seen the clear, glowing sky, and all around the pale green prickly stems of raspberry trees, where they grow mingled together in a tangle of profusion. At one's feet springs the dark green nettle, with its slender crown of flowers, while the broad-leaved burdock with its bright pink prickly blossoms overtops the raspberries, and even one's head, with its luxuriant masses, until with the nettle it almost meets the pendant, pale green branches of the apple-trees, where apples round and lustrous as bone, but yet as unripe, are mellowing in the heat of the sun. Below again are seen young raspberry shoots twining themselves around the partially withered leafless parent-plant, and stretching their tendrils toward the sunlight, with green needle-shaped blades of grass and young dew-coated pods peering through last year's leaves, and growing juicily green in the perennial shade as though they care nothing for the bright sunshine which is playing on the leaves of the apple-trees above them. In this density there is always moisture, always a smell of confined perpetual shade, of cobwebs, fallen apples, turning black where they roll on the mouldy sod, raspberries, and earwigs of the kind which impel one to reach hastily for more fruit when one has inadvertently swallowed a member of that insect tribe with the last berry. At every step one's movements keep flushing the sparrows which always make their home in these depths, and one hears their fussy chirping and the beating of their tiny fluttering wings against the stalks, and catches the low buzzing of a bumblebee, somewhere, and the sound of the gardener's footsteps, it is half-daft Acum, on the path as he hums his eternal sing-song to himself. Then one mutters under one's breath, No, neither he nor any one else shall find me here. Yet still one goes on stripping juicy berries from their conical white pilasters, and cramming them into one's mouth. At length one's legs soak to the knees as one repeats over and over again some rubbish which keeps running in one's head, and one's hands and nether limbs, despite the protection of one's wet trousers, thoroughly stung with the nettles, one comes to the conclusion that the sun's rays are beating too straight upon one's head for eating to be any longer desirable, and sinking down into the tangle of greenery, one remains there, looking and listening, and continuing in mechanical fashion to strip off one or two of the finer berries and swallow them. At eleven o'clock, that is to say, when the ladies had taken their morning tea and settled down to their occupations, I would repair to the drawing-room. Near the first window, with its unbleached linen blind lowered to exclude the sunshine, but through the chink of which the sun kept throwing brilliant circles of light which hurt the eye to look at them, there would be standing a screen, with flies quietly parading the whiteness of its covering. Behind it would be seated Mimi, shaking her head in an irritable manner, and constantly shifting from spot to spot to avoid the sunshine, as at intervals it darted her from somewhere and laid a streak of flame upon her hand or face. Through the other three windows the sun would be throwing three squares of light, crossed with the shadows of the window-frames, and where one of these patches marked the unstained floor of the room, there would be lying, in accordance with invariable custom, Milka, with her ears pricked as she watched the flies promenading the lighted space, seated on a settee 
Katenka would be knitting or reading aloud as from time to time she gave her white sleeves, looking almost transparent in the sunshine, an impatient shake, or tossed her head with a frown to drive away some fly which had settled upon her thick auburn hair and was now buzzing in its tangles. Lubotshka would either be walking up and down the room, her hands clasped behind her, until the moment should arrive when a movement would be made towards the garden, or playing some piece of which every note had long been familiar to me. For my own part I would sit down somewhere and listen to the music or the reading until such time as I myself should have an opportunity of performing on the piano. After luncheon I would condescend to take the girls out riding, since to go for a mere walk at that hour seemed to me unsuitable to my years and position in the world. And these excursions of ours, in which I often took my companions through the unaccustomed spots and dells, were very pleasant. Indeed, on some of these occasions I grew quite boyish, and the girls would praise my riding and daring, and pretend that I was their protector. In the evening, if we had no guests with us, tea, served in the dim veranda, would be followed by a walk around the homestead with papa, and then I would stretch myself on my usual settee and read and ponder as of old, as I listened to Katenka or Lubotshka playing. At other times, if I was alone in the drawing-room and Lubotshka was performing some old-time air, I would find myself laying my book down and gazing through the open doorway on to the balcony at the pendant, sinuous branches of the tall birch-trees where they stood overshadowed by the coming night, and at the clear sky where, if one looked at it intently enough, misty yellowish spots would appear suddenly and then disappear again. Next, as I listened to the sounds of the music wafted from the salon, and to the creaking gates and the voices of the peasant women when the cattle returned to the village, I would suddenly bethink me of Natalia Savishna, and of Mamma, and of Karl Ivanitch, and become momentarily sad. But in those days my spirit was so full of life and hope that such reminiscences only touched me in passing, and soon fled away again. After supper, and sometimes a night stroll with some one in the garden, for I was afraid to walk down the dark avenues by myself, I would repair to my solitary sleeping-place on the veranda a proceeding which, despite the countless mosquitoes which always devoured me, afforded me the greatest pleasure. If the moon was full, I frequently spent whole nights sitting up on my mattress, looking at the light and shade, listening to the sounds or stillness, dreaming of one matter and another, but more particularly of the poetic voluptuous happiness which, in those days, I believed was to prove the acme of my felicity, and lamenting that until now it had only been given me to imagine things. No sooner had every one dispersed, and I had seen lights pass from the drawing-room to the upper chambers, whence female voices would presently be heard, and the noise of windows opening and shutting, than I would depart to the veranda, and walk up and down there as I listened attentively to the sounds from the slumbering mansion. To this day, whenever I feel any expectation, no matter how small and baseless, of realizing a fraction of some happiness of which I may be dreaming, I somehow invariably fail to picture to myself what the imagined happiness is going to be like. At the least sound of bare footsteps, or of a cough, or of a snore, or of the rattling of a window, or of the rustling of a dress, I would leap from my mattress and stand furtively gazing and listening, thrown without any visible cause into extreme agitation. But the lights would disappear from the upper rooms, the sounds of footsteps and talking give place to snores, the watchman begin his nightly tapping with his stick the garden grow brighter and more mysterious as the streaks of light vanished from the windows, 
The last candle passed from the pantry to the hall, throwing a glimmer into the dewy garden as it did so, and the stooping figure of Foka, decked in a nightcap and carrying the candle, become visible to my eyes as he went to his bed. Often I would find a great and fearful pleasure in stealing over the grass in the black shadow of the house, until I had reached the hall window, where I would stand listening with bated breath to the snoring of the boy, to Foka's gruntings, in the belief that no one heard him, and to the sound of his senile voice as he drawled out the evening prayers. At length even his candle would be extinguished, and the window slammed down so that I would find myself utterly alone. Whereupon, glancing nervously from side to side, lest haply I should see the white woman standing near a flower-bed, or by my couch, I would run at full speed back to the veranda. Then, and only then, I would lie down with my face to the garden, and covering myself over so far as possible from the mosquitoes and bats, fall to gazing in front of me as I listened to the sounds of the night and dreamed of love and happiness. At such times everything would take on for me a different meaning. The look of the old birch-trees, with the one side of their curling branches showing bright against the moonlit sky, and the other darkening the bushes and carriage-drive with their black shadows, the calm, rich glitter of the pond ever swelling like a sound, the moonlit sparkle of the dew-drops on the flowers in front of the veranda, the graceful shadows of those flowers where they lay thrown upon the gray stonework, the cry of a quail on the far side of the pond, the voice of some one walking on the high road, the quiet, scarcely audible scrunching of two old birch-trees against one another, the humming of a mosquito at my ear under the coverlet, the fall of an apple as it caught against a branch and rustled among the dry leaves, the leapings of frogs as they approached almost to the veranda steps and sat with the moon shining mysteriously on their green backs. All these things took on for me a strange significance, a significance of exceeding beauty and of infinite love. Before me would rise she, with long black tresses and a high bust, but always mournful in her fairness with bare hands and voluptuous arms, she loved me, and for one moment of her love I would sacrifice my whole life. But the moon would go on rising higher and higher, and shining brighter and brighter in the heavens. The rich sparkle of the pond would swell like a sound, and become ever more and more brilliant, while the shadows would grow blacker and blacker, and the sheen of the moon more and more transparent, until, as I looked at and listened to all this, Something would say to me that she, with the bare hands and voluptuous arms, did not represent all happiness, that love for her did not represent all good. So that, the more I gazed at the full high-riding moon, the higher would true beauty and goodness appear to me to lie, and the purer and purer they would seem, the nearer and nearer to him who is the source of all beauty and all goodness, and tears of a sort of unsatisfied yet tumultuous joy would fill my eyes. Always, too, I was alone, yet always, too, it seemed to me that, although great, mysterious nature could draw the shining disk of the moon to herself, and somehow hold in some high indefinite place the pale blue sky, and be everywhere around me, and fill of herself the infinity of space, while I was but a lowly worm, already defiled with the poor petty passions of humanity. Always it seemed to me that, Nevertheless, both nature and the moon and I were one. End of section eight. Recording by Bill Borst.